0: 5. T- Interpretations. We have found the story where these names were probably never heard of. We interpret it as a tale of the intercourse between mortal men and immortal maids, or between men and metamorphosed animals. As in India and North America, we explain the separation of the lovers as the result of breaking a taboo, or law of etiquette, binding among men and women, as well as between men and fairies. The taboos are, to see the beloved unveiled, to upper his or her name to touch her with a metal terrible to ghosts and spirits, or to do some action which will revive the associations of a former life. We have shown that rules of nuptial etiquette resembling these in character do exist, and have existed, even among Greeks as where the Milesian, like the Zulu, women made a law not to upper their husbands' names. Finally, we think it a reasonable hypothesis that tales on the pattern of Cupid and Psyche might have been evolved wherever a curious nuptial taboo required to be sanctioned. Or explained by a myth. On this hypothesis, the stories may have been separately invented in different lands, but there is also a chance that they have been transmitted from people to people in the unknown past of our scattered and wandering race. This theory seems at least as probable as the hypothesis that the meaning of an Aryan proverbial statement about sun and dawn was forgotten and was altered unconsciously into a tale which is found among various non-Aryan tribes. That hypothesis again. Learned and ingenious as it island has the misfortune to be opposed by other scholarly hypotheses not less ingenious and learned. As for the sun frog, we may hope that he has sunk forever beneath the western wave. A far-traveled tale, a modern novelist has boasted that her books are read from Tobolsk to Tangiers. This is a wide circulation, but the widest circulation in the world has probably been achieved by a story whose author, and like Wiga, will never be known to fame. The tale which we are about to examine, island perhaps, of all myths the most widely diffused, yet there is no ready way of accounting for its extraordinary popularity. Any true nature myth, any myth which accounts for the processes of nature or the aspects of natural phenomena, may conceivably have been invented separately, wherever men in an early state of thought observed the same facts, and attempted to explain them by telling a story. Thus, we have seen that the earlier part of the myth of Cronus is a nature myth. Setting forth the cause of the separation of heaven and earth, star myths again, are everywhere similar, because men who believed all nature to be animated and personal, accounted for the grouping of constellations in accordance with these crude beliefs. Once more, if a story like that of Cupid and Psyche be found among the most diverse races, the distribution becomes intelligible if the myth was invented to illustrate or enforce a widely prevalent custom but in the following story no such explanation is even provisionally acceptable. The gist of the tale which has many different openings, and conclusions in different places may be stated thus, a young man is brought to the home of a hostile animal, a giant, cannibal, wizard, or a malevolent king. He is put by his unfriendly host to various severe trials, in which it is hoped that he will perish. In each trial he is assisted by the daughter of his host. After achieving the adventures, he elopes with the girl, and is pursued by her father, the runaway pair throw various common objects behind them, which are changed into magical obstacles and check the pursuit of the father, the myth has various endings, usually happy, in various places, another form of the narrative is known, in which the visitors to the home of the hostile being are, not wooers of his daughter, but brothers of his wife, the incidents of the flight, in this variant, are still of the same character. Finally, when the flight is that of a brother from his sister's malevolent ghost, in Hades Japan, or of two sisters from a cannibal mother or stepmother Zulu and Samoyed, the events of the flight and the magical aids to escape remain little altered. We shall afterwards see that attempts have been made to interpret one of these narratives as a nature myth, but the attempts seem unsuccessful. We are therefore at a loss to account for the wide diffusion of this tale, unless it has been transmitted slowly from people to people in the immense unknown prehistoric past of the human race, before comparing the various forms of the myth in its first shape that which tells of the mortal lover and the giant's or wizard's daughter let us give the Scottish version of the story. This version was written down for me, many years ago, by an aged lady in Murderyshire. I published it in the review Celtic, but it is probably new to story comparers. In its broad Scotch variant, an ICHT not nothing, there once lived a king and a queen. They were long married and had no bairns, but at last the queen had a bairn. When the kin was away in far countries, the queen would not christen the bairn till the king came back. And she said, We will just call him Nick not nothing until his father comes home. But it was long before he came home. And the boy had grown a nice little laddie. At length the kin was on his way back, but he had a big river to cross. And there was a spade. And he could not get over the water. But a giant came up to him and said, if you will give me Nick not nothing, I will carry you over the water on my back, the king had never heard that his son was called Nick not nothing, and so he promised him, when the king got home again, he was very happy to see his wife again, and his young son, she told him that she had not given the child any name but Nick not nothing, until he should come home again himself, the poor kin was in a terrible case, he said, what have I done, I promised to give the giant who carried me over the river on his back, Nick not nothing, the king and the queen were sad and sorry, but they said, when the giant comes we will give him the henwife's wife's bairn, he will never know the difference, the next day the giant came to claim the king's promise, and he sent for the henwife's wife's bairn, and the giant went away with the bairn on his back, he traveled till he came to a big stone, and there he sat down to rest, he said, Hidge, Hodge, on my back. What time of day is it? The poor little bairn said, It is the time that my mother, the hen wife, takes up the eggs for the queen's breakfast. The giant was very angry, and dashed the bairn on the stone and killed it. The same adventure is repeated with the gardener's son. Then the giant went back to the king's house, and said he would destroy them all if they did not give him Nick not nothing this time. They had to do it, and when he came to the big stone, the giant said, What time of day is it? Nick not nothing said. It is the time that my father the kin will be sitting down to supper. The giant said, "I've got the rich tain new." And took Nick not nothing to his own house and brought him up till he was a man. The giant had a bonny doctor, and she and the lad grew very fond of each other. The giant said one day to Nick not nothing, "I've work for you tomorrow. There is a stable seven miles long and seven miles broad, and it has not been cleaned for seven years, and you must clean it tomorrow." Or I will have you for my supper. The giant's doctor went out next morning with the lad's breakfast, and found him in a terrible state, for I as he cleaned out a bit, if I fell in again, the giant's doctor said she would help him, and she cried A the beasts of the field, and a the fowls o' oh, the air, and in a minute they came, and carried away everything that was in the stable and made a clean before the giant came home. He said, Shame for the whip that helped you, but I have a of job for you tomorrow. Then he told Nick not nothing that there was a lock seven miles long, and seven miles deep, and seven miles broad, and he must drain it the next day, or else he would have him for his supper. Nick not nothing began early next morning and tried to lay the water with his pail, but the lock was never getting any less, and he did no come what to do, but the giant's doctor called on all the fish in the sea to come and drink the water, and very soon they drank it dry. When the giant saw the work done he was in a rage, and said, I the worst job for you tomorrow, there is a tree seven miles high, and no branch on it, till you get to the top, and there is a nest, and you must bring down the eggs without breaking one, or else I will have you for my supper. At first the giant's doctor did not know how to help Nick not nothing, but she cut off first her fingers and then her toes, and made steps of them, and he cloned the tree. And got all the eggs safe till he came to the bottom. And then one was broken. The giant's doctor advised him to run away. And she would follow him. So he traveled till he came to a king's palace. And the king and queen took him in and were very kind to him. The giant's doctor left her father's house. And he pursued her and was drowned. Then she came to the king's palace where Nick not nothing was. And she went up into a tree to watch for him. The gardener's doctor. Going to draw water in the well saw the shadow of the lady in the water, and thought it was herself, and said, If I'm so bonny, if I'm so brave, do you send me to draw water? The gardener's wife went out, and she said the same thing. Then the gardener went himself, and brought the lady from the tree, and led her in, and he told her that a stranger was to marry the king's doctor, and showed her the man, and it was Nick not nothing asleep in a chair, and she saw him, and cried to him, Waken! waken, and speak to me, but he would not waken, and sign she cried, I clean the stable, I lave the lock, and I clan the tree, and all for the love of thee, and thou wilt not waken and speak to me, the king and the queen heard this, and came to the bonnie young lady, and she said, I canna get Nick not nothing to speak to me for all that I can do, then were they greatly astonished when she spoke of Nick not nothing, and asked where he was, and she said, He that sits there in the chair, then they ran to him and kissed him and called him their own dear son, and he wakened, and told them all that the giant's doctor had done for him, and of all her kindness, then they took her in their arms and kissed her, and said she should now be their doctor, for their son should marry her, and they lived happy all their days, in this variant of the story, which we may use as our text, it is to be noticed that a lacuna exists. The narrative of the flight omits to mention that the runaways threw things behind them which became obstacles in the giant's way. One of these objects probably turned into a lake, in which the giant was drowned. A common incident is the throwing behind of a comb, which changes into a thicket. The formula of leaving obstacles behind occurs in the Indian collection, the Contes Vii, XXXIX, the Battle of the Birds, in Camel's Tales of the West Highlands, is a very copious Gaelic variant. Russian parallels are Vasilisha the Wise and the Water King, and the King Bear. 93a The incident of the flight and the magical obstacles is found in Japanese mythology. 93b The ugly woman of Hades is sent to pursue the hero. He casts down his black head dress, and it is instantly turned into grapes. He fled while she was eating them. Again, he cast down his multitudinous and close to comb and it instantly turned into bamboo sprouts, in the Gaelic version, the pursuer is detained by talkative objects which the pursued leave at home, and this marvel recurs in Zululand, and is found among the Bushmen, the Zulu versions are numerous, 93C oddly enough, in the last variant, the girl performs no magic feat, but merely throws sesamum on the ground to delay the cannibals, for cannibals are very fond of sesamum, 93D here, then, We have the remarkable details of the flight, in Zulu, Gaelic, Norse, Malagasy, 93E Russian, Italian, Japanese, of all incidents in the myth. The incidents of the flight are most widely known, but the whole connected series of events the coming of the wooer, the love of the hostile being's daughter, the tasks imposed on the wooer, the aid rendered by the daughter, the flight of the pair, the defeat or destruction of the hostile being all these, or most of these, are extant in due sequence, among the following races, the Greeks have the tale, the people of Madagascar have it, the Lowland Scotch, the Celts, the Russians, the Italians, the Algonquins, the Finns, and the Samoans have it, now if the story were confined to the Aryan race, we might account for its diffusion, by supposing it to be the common heritage of the Indo-European peoples, carried everywhere with them in their wanderings, but when the tale is found in Madagascar, North America, Samoa, and among the Finns, while many scattered incidents occur in even more widely severed races, such as Zulus, Bushmen, Japanese, Eskimo, Samoyeds, the Aryan hypothesis becomes inadequate to show how closely, all things considered, the Aryan and non-Aryan possessors of the tale agree. Let us first examine the myth of Jason. The earliest literary reference to the myth of Jason is in the Iliad VII, 467. XXII. 747. Here we read of Eunios, a son whom Hipsipile bore to Jason in Lemnos. Already, even in the Iliad, the legend of Argo's voyage has been fitted into certain well-known geographical localities. A reference in the Odyssey XII. 72 has a more antique ring, we are told that of all barks Argo alone escaped the jaws of the rocks wandering, which clashed together and destroyed ships. Argo escaped. It is said. Because Jason was dear to Hera, it is plain, from various fragmentary notices, that Hesiod was familiar with several of the adventures in the legend of Jason. In the Theogony 993-998, Hesiod mentions the essential facts of the legend, how Jason carried off from Aetes his daughter, after achieving the adventures, many and grievous, which were laid upon him. At what period the home of Aetes was placed in Colchis? It is not easy to determine. Mimnermus, a contemporary of Solon, makes the home of Ites lie on the brink of ocean—a very vague description. Pindar, on the other hand, in the splendid fourth Cithaeron already knows Colchis as the scene of the loves and flight of Jason and Medea. Long were it for me to go by the beaten track, says Pindar, and I know a certain short path. Like Pindar, we may abridge the tale of Jason. He seeks the golden fleece in Colchis. Aetes offers it to him as a prize for success in certain labors. By the aid of Medea, the daughter of Aetes, the wizard king, Jason tames the fire breathing oxen, yokes them to the plow, and drives a furrow. By Medea's help, he conquers the children of the teeth of the dragon, subdues the snake that guards the fleece of gold, and escapes, but is pursued by Aetes. To detain Aetes, Medea throws behind the mangled remains of her own brother, Absurdus and the Colchians pursue no further than the scene of this bloody deed. The savagery of this act survives even in the work of a poet so late as Apollonius Rodius I.D. 477, where we read how Jason performed a rite of savage magic, mutilating the body of absurdus in a manner which was believed to appease the avenging ghost of the slain. Thrice he tasted the blood. Thrice spat it out between his teeth. A passage which the Scoliast says contains the description of an archaic custom popular among murderers, beyond Tommy, where a popular etymology fixed the cutting up of Absurdus. We need not follow the fortunes of Jason and Medea, we have already seen the wooer come to the hostile being, win his daughter's love, achieve the adventures by her aid, and flee in her company, delaying, by a horrible device, the advance of the pursuers. To these incidents in the tale we confine our attention. Many explanations of the Jason myth have been given by scholars who thought they recognized elemental phenomena in the characters. As usual these explanations differ widely. Whenever a myth has to be interpreted, it is certain that one set of scholars will discover the sun and the dawn, where another set will see the thunder cloud and lightning. The moon is thrown in at pleasure. Sir G.W. Cox determines that the name Jason Iason must be classed with the many others. Yashion, Ionis, Iolous, Yeso, belonging to the same root. Well, what is the root? Apparently the root is the root I as denoting a crying color. That island allowed color I I 81. Seemingly I 229 violet is allowed color. And, wherever you have the root I you have the violet tinted morning from which the sun is born. Medea is the daughter of the sun day and most likely, in her beneficent aspect, is the dawn. But I I 81. No Dios has another meaning, which, as a sphere, represents the far-darting ray of the sun, so that, in one way or another, Jason is connected with the violet-tinted morning or with the sun's rays. This is the gist of the theory of Sir George Cox. Preller 97a is another scholar, with another set of etymologies. Jason is derived, he thinks, from Greek, to heal, because Jason studied medicine under the centaur Chiron. This is the view of the Scoliast on Apollonius road I-554. Jason, to Preller's mind, is a form of Asclepius, a spirit of the spring with its soft suns and fertile rains. Media is the moon. Media, on the other hand, is a lightning goddess. In the opinion of Swartz, 97b no philological reason is offered. Meanwhile, in Sir George Cox's system, the equivalent of Media, in her beneficent aspect, is the dawn we must suppose, it seems, that either the soft spring rains and the moon, or the dawn and the sun day or the lightning and the thunder cloud, in one arrangement or another, irresistibly suggested, to early Aryan minds, the picture of a wooer, arriving in a hostile home, winning a maiden's love, achieving adventures by her aid, fleeing with her from her angry father and delaying his pursuit by various devices, why the spring, the moon, the lightning, the dawn any of them or all of them should have suggested such a tale. Let scholars determine when they have reconciled their own differences. It is more to our purpose to follow the myth among Samoans, Algonquins, and Finns. None of these races speak an Aryan language, and none can have been beguiled into telling the same sort of tale by a disease of Aryan speech. Samoa, where we find our story, is the name of a group of volcanic islands in central Polynesia. They are about 3.000 miles from Sydney, were first observed by Europeans in 1722, and are as far removed as most spots from direct Aryan influences. Our position island however, that in the shiftings and migrations of peoples, the Jason tale has somehow been swept, like a piece of driftwood, onto the coasts of Samoa. In the islands, the tale has an ethical form, and is chanted in a poem of 26 stanzas, There is something Greek in the free and happy life of the Samoans something Greek, too. In this myth of theirs, there was once a youth, Siati, famous for his singing, the young Tamiris of Samoa, but as, according to Homer, the muses met Tamiris the Thracian, and made an end of his singing, for he boasted and said that he would vanquish even the muses if he sang against them, so did the Samoan god of song envy Siati the god and the mortal sang a match, the daughter of the god was to be the mortal's prize if he proved victorious, Siati won, and he set off, riding on a shark, as Arian rode the dolphin, to seek the home of the defeated deity, at length he reached the shores divine, and thither strayed Puepi, daughter of the god, looking for her comb which she had lost, Siati, said she, how camest thou hither, I am come to seek the song god, and to wed his daughter, my father, Said the maiden, is more a god than a man, eat nothing he hands you, never sit on a high seat, lest death follow, so they were united in marriage, but the god, like Yates, was wroth, and began to set Siati upon perilous tasks, build me a house, and let it be finished this very day, else death in the oven await thee, ninety-nine a Siati wept, but the god's daughter had the house built by the evening, the other adventurers were to fight a fierce dog and to find a ring lost at sea, just as the scotch giant's daughter cut off her fingers to help her lover, so the Samoan god's daughter bade Siati cut her body into pieces and cast her into the sea, there she became a fish, and recovered the ring, they set off to the god's house, but met him pursuing them, with the help of his other daughter, Puapi and Siati threw down the comb, and it became a bush of thorns in the way to intercept the god and Puoli, the other daughter, Next they threw down a bottle of earth which became a mountain, and then followed their bottle of water, and that became a sea, and drowned the god and Ninety-nine. This old Samoan song contains merely the closest savage parallel to the various household tales which find their heroic and artistic shape in the Jason saga. Still more surprising in its resemblances is the Malagasy version of the narrative. In the Malagasy story, the conclusion is almost identical with the winding up of the Scotch fairy tale the girl hides in a tree, her face, seen reflected in a well, is mistaken by women for their own faces, and the recognition follows in due course. 99 C like most Red Indian versions of popular tales, the in form of the Jason saga is strongly marked with the peculiarities of the race, the story is recognizable, and that is all, the opening, as usual, differs from other openings, to children are deserted in the wilderness, and grow up to manhood, one of them loses an arrow in the water, the elder brother, Paniguan, wades after it, a magical canoe flies past, an old magician, who is alone in the canoe, seizes Paniguan and carries him off, the canoe fleets along, like the barks of the Phaeacians, at the will of the magician, and reaches the isle where, like the Samoan god of Song, he dwells with his two daughters, here, my daughter, said he, is a young man for your husband, But the daughter knew that the proposed husband was but another victim of the old man's magic arts. By the daughter's advice, the escaped in the magic bark, consoled his brother, and returned to the island. Next day the magician, Masasha, set the young man to hard tasks and perilous adventures. He was to gather gulls' eggs, but the gulls attacked him in dense crowds. By an incantation he subdued the birds, and made them carry him home to the island. Next day he was sent to gather pebbles, that he might be attacked and eaten by the kin of the fishes. Once more the young man, like the Finnish ilmer in an impo subdued the mighty fish, and went back triumphant. The third adventure, as in Nick not nothing, was to climb a tree of extraordinary height in search of a bird's nest. Here, again, the youth succeeded, and finally conspired with the daughters to slay the old magician. Lastly the boy turned the magician into a sycamore tree and won his daughter. The other daughter was given to the brother who had no share in the perils. Here we miss the incident of the flight, and the magician's daughter, though in love with the hero, does not aid him to perform the feats. Perhaps an Algonquin brave would scorn the assistance of a girl. In the Kalevala, the old hero, Wainamoinen, and his friend Ilmarinen, set off to the mysterious and hostile land of Pojola to win a bride. The maiden of Pojola loses her heart to Ilmarinen, and, By her aid, he bridles the wolf and bear, plows a field of adders with a plow of gold, and conquers the gigantic pike that swims in the sticks of Finnish mythology. After this point the story is interrupted by a long sequel of popular bridal songs, and, in the wandering course of the rather aimless epic, the flight and its incidents have been forgotten, or are neglected. These incidents recur. However, in the thread of somewhat different plots, we have seen that they are found in Japan, Among the Eskimo, among the Bushmen, the Samoyeds, and the Zulus, as well as in Hungarian, Magyar, Celtic, and other European household tales, the conclusion appears to be that the central part of the Jason myth is incapable of being explained, either as a nature myth, or as a myth founded on a disease of language. So many languages could not take the same malady in the same way. Nor can we imagine any series of natural phenomena that would inevitably suggest this tale to so many diverse races, we must suppose, therefore, either that all wits jumped and invented the same romantic series of situations by accident, or that all men spread from one center, where the story was known, or that the story, once invented, has drifted all round the world, if the last theory be approved of, the tale will be like the Indian Ocean shell found lately in the Polish bone cave. 102 or like the Egyptian beads discovered in the soil of Dahomey, the story will have been carried hither and thither, in the remotest times, to the remotest shores, by traders, by slaves, by captives in war, or by women torn from their own tribe and forcibly settled as wives among alien peoples. Stories of this kind are everywhere the natural property of mothers and grandmothers. When we remember how widely diffused is the law of exogamy, which forbids marriage between a man and woman of the same stock. We are impressed by the number of alien elements which must have been introduced with alien wives, where husband and wife, as often happened, spoke different languages. The woman would inevitably bring the hearthside tales of her childhood among a people of strange speech. By all these agencies, working through dayless time, we may account for the diffusion, if we cannot explain the origin of tales like the central arrangement of incidents in the career of Jason, 100 to be Apollo and the Mass. Why is Apollo, especially the Apollo of the Trood, he who showered the darts of pestilence among the Greeks, so constantly associated with a Mass, the very name, Smythias, by which his favorite priest calls on him in the Iliad I-39, might be rendered Mass Apollo, or Apollo, Lord of Mice, as we shall see later, Mice live beneath the altar, and are fed in the holy of holies of the god, and an image of a mass was placed beside or upon his sacred tripod, the ancients were puzzled by these things, and, as will be shown, accounted for them by mass stories, Greek, so styled by Eustathius, the medieval interpreter of Homer, following our usual method, let us ask whether similar phenomena occur elsewhere, in countries where they are intelligible, did insignificant animals elsewhere receive wordership, were there effigies elsewhere placed in the temples of a pure creed? We find answers in the history of Peruvian religion. After the Spanish conquest of Peru, one of the European adventurers, Don Garcilaso de Lobega, married an Inca princess, their son, also named Garcilaso, was born about 1540. His famous book, Commentary Reels, contains the most authentic account of the old Peruvian beliefs. Garcilaso was learned in all the learning of the Europeans, and, as an Inca on the mother's side, had claims on the loyalty of the defeated race. He set himself diligently to collect both their priestly and popular traditions, and his account of them is the more trustworthy as it coincides with what we know to have been true in lands with which Garcilaso had little acquaintance. To Garcilaso's mind, Peruvian religion seems to be divided into two periods the age before and the age which followed the accession of the Incas, and their establishment of sun worship as the creed of the state. In the earlier period, the pre-Inca period, he tells us an Indian was not accounted honorable unless he was descended from a fountain, river, or lake, or even from the sea, or from a wild animal, such as a bear, lion, tiger, eagle, or the bird they call or condor or some other bird of prey. 104 A. To these worshipful creatures men offered what they usually saw them eat by 53, but men were not content to adore large and dangerous animals. There was not an animal, how vile and filthy sever, that they did not worship as a god, including lizards, toads, and frogs. In the midst of these superstitions the Incas appeared, just as the tribes claimed descent from animals, great or small. So the Incas drew their pedigree from the sun which they adored like the gens of the Aurelii in Rome. 104b. Thus every Indian had his Pecarisa, or, as the North American Indians say, totem. 105a, a natural object from which he claimed descent, and which, in a certain degree, he worshipped. Though sun worship became the established religion, worship of the animal Pecarises was still tolerated. The sun temples also contained wakas, or images. Of the beasts which the Indians had venerated, one hundred five B in the great temple of Pachacamac, the most spiritual and abstract god of Peruvian faith, they were worshipped a she fox and an emerald. The devil also appeared to them and spoke in the form of a tiger, very fierce. One hundred five C this toleration of an older and cruder in subordination to a purer faith is a very common feature in religious evolution. In Catholic countries, to this day, we may watch. In Holy Week, the Adonis feast described by Theocritus, 105d and the procession and entombment of the old god of spring, the Incas had the good policy to collect all the tribal animal gods into their temples in and round Cuzco, in which the two leading gods were the master of life, and the sun, did a process of this sort ever occur in Greek religion, and were older animal gods ever collected into the temples of such deities as Apollo, while a great deal of scattered evidence about many animals consecrated to Greek God's points in this direction, it will be enough, for the present, to examine the case of the sacred mice, among races which are still in the totemistic stage, which still claim descent from animals and from other objects, a peculiar marriage law generally exists, or can be shown to have existed, no man may marry a woman who is descended from the same ancestral animal, and who,